Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... Do you have an x-ray on site or do you just go to the nearest A&E with 130 <laughs> swans in the back of a van? You've got a load of tame, one metre tall birds running around. With really sharp bills. <laughs> Basically feathered javelins. You can have a lot of leftovers and a lot of kind of, you know, crane curry for a yeah. few weeks. <laughs> Today's episode is another Geese on Tour special. You see, back in the spring we received an invitation from the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust to go and see some very special birds that they'd helped bring back to the UK. So, on a rainy May morning, we found ourselves in a bird hide in Gloucestershire with Slimbridge Warden, Scott Petrek. Hello Scott, Hello. welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, can you tell us about whereabouts we are? So we're in a hide they call the Zeiss Hide. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're overlooking an area of field called the Top New Piece, and they've got the Seven Estuary just over the way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a really good bit of the reserve. There's lots of sort of mix of habitats here. Yeah. Um, if you can hear the reed warblers chuntering away in the background mm-hmm. as well. But yeah, on the Seven Estuary, it's an internationally important wetland site here. Um, so we're very fortunate to kind of have this bit of habitat that we've got here. And what do you do here? So I'm the reserve warden, um, so I'm looking after teams of volunteers doing the habitat management. So spend my winter running around with a chainsaw. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe not running. Um, after uh, the birds. No, <laughs> keeping, the, keeping the habitat in good condition for them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, lots of habitat management throughout the year and that, that season also everything during the summer is vegetation control, getting the site ready for winter because we get yeah. tens of thousands of winter birds here. Right. Um, the spring, doing all the fencing, getting ready for the cattle to go back out on site. So that's kind of the current jobs, although a bit wet today for a bit of fencing. Yeah, we'll it is, we that. should say, yeah, it is, I don't want to be hyperbolic, it is biblical. <laughs> As our first venture into recording in the outside world, this has really presented challenges. <laughs> well, but thankfully we're in hide. And this isn't any hide. If you're listening, you're thinking bird hide. You're thinking, I know what a bird hide is. You're thinking it's got one floor. A, like shed, a shed with a window. This has, I don't know how high, how high up are we? Well, it's, like a, it's like the size of your house. It's like a Swiss chalet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's huge. But with plywood. Yeah, it's massive. When was this, when was this built? Oh, this one must is go it an back. Old one? Yeah, this is one of the kind of the older ones. This would go back maybe to the 70s or 80s. Because Slimbridge um, is an old, an old place, isn't it? Yeah, like Slimbridge has been reserve. here. 1946 it was set up, yeah. um, what was the Seven Wildfowl Trust, and then it's kind of merged into WWT over the years. So 75th anniversary last year. Okay. So it's still going strong and yeah. branched out from just the banks here on the estuary, now working internationally in Madagascar and Cambodia and over oh. in China. So loads and loads and loads of work going on as well as kind of stuff here on your doorstep as That's well. That's cool. I yeah. wanted to say, when we were talking about the history of Slimbridge, we have briefly mentioned on the podcast before the founder of Slimbridge, Maybe not in the most uh, positive light <laughs> when we were talking about the accidental introduction of Rudy Looks to the UK. Yeah. But he did a lot of great things, didn't he? Can you oh, tell yeah. us a bit about Peter Scott? So he, he set up the organisation here. So we've got 10 centres across the UK. So mm-hmm. loads of places for people to come and see wildlife. Great places for that wildlife. And I say all these international projects as well. But outside of WWT, people don't know he actually helped set up what we call the Ramsar Convention. So that's like the international gold standard for wetlands, like yeah. the, oh. the best level of protection you can get of yeah. the best wetlands of the world. Oh. Um, he also helped set up WWF. So the yeah. Panda logo is something that he drew and created in, in the house around the corner here. 
Um, so yeah, he had many, many kind of strings to his bow for conservation. He helped with the whaling moratorium. Um, but oh, then he was cool. also an Olympic athlete. He was a, a paraglider, um, a glider. He, uh, right, yeah, he could <laughs> pretty much anything he tried, he could do very, very well. And he was, we spoke about in the podcast, he was son of Scott of the Antarctic. Yeah, so hard act to follow. So, yeah, yeah I mean, but I'd say he managed it. Yeah. yeah. No. Did he set up the other WWF? Not the wrestling, though, unfortunately. <laughs> that, was, that, that came a little bit later. He was actually The Rock in Madagascar. So the project there has links back to Peter Scott and even David Attenborough. So they were they were quite close friends. Oh, so when David Attenborough used to do Zoo Quest and go out on mm. the sort of recordings all around the world. Wrangle yeah. some giraffes. Yeah. Well, Peter Scott apparently said, oh, you're going to Madagascar. There's a bird there, Madagascar potchard, which is what we're working on now. Um, it was really rare at the time. You know, would you bring some back so we could, you know, have a captive population and breed them? And David Attenborough was, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Went out there, came back, completely forgot. Saw <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Peter Scott sometime later, and um, Peter Scott said, "Oh, you know, how did you get on with the, the potchard?" And David Atten was like, "Oh, you know, we didn't see any, unfortunately." Thinking, you know, we'll do. I've kind of forgot what I'm doing. Um, and he said, "Oh, that's interesting because they were in the background of your shot when you were filming." Absolutely so, um, busted. So, yeah, that's we, the first story I've ever heard of David Attenborough being fallible. Just growing up, yeah. <laughs> 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 such a high. And now we know that actually, if you send him to do something, he might just forget. Uh, I think for, for everything he's done, oh, yeah. Yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll it's, forgive him for that does, one. Yeah, it's the most like the dog ate my homework. Yeah. It sort of makes it, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, it's also, I forgot, with an entire camera crew <laughs> filming your every move, like, it's there. But why are we in this hide and looking out across this particular bit of wetland, talking about conservation work? So yeah, as long as, as well as for a segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got obviously the international projects, but there's still a lot going on for WWT here back here in the UK. So mm -hmm. as well as the wetland sites, we've got projects, one of which uh, we've got a couple of individuals out in front of the hide here from our Great Crane project, which we ran with the RSPB between mm -hmm. 2010 and 2014. Uh, and that was where we bought over eggs from Germany, used the same technique of hatching them and raising them in captivity, releasing them into the wild. And it was part of a reintroduction program for the southwest they've been extinct for about 400 years down here wow. um, so they were raised here in our specialist facilities by our aviculturalists yeah. um, sent down to Somerset released down to the Somerset levels and they're doing well down there um, but what we didn't bank on is there's around about a dozen of them actually came back yeah. <laughs> um, so they've set up shop here so we've now got new areas of habitat on the reserve for them mm -hmm. and uh, yeah we've got a pair out here this is Oki and Sherbet the male and the female and yeah. they've currently got two chicks but they're tucked away sheltering at the moment in the rain <sighs> you say two chicks yeah, two chicks out here. Do they always have two? Yeah, they always lay two. Um, sometimes it doesn't always go well because they don't, when they lay, they don't start incubating the two eggs at the same time. They'll start incubating the first one. So the first one hatches a day or two early and yeah. is usually the dominant bird. And they do end up usually one will kill the other, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but it's a strategy that does work for them. But yeah. we have fledged two chicks from different families here over the last right. few years. So if the habitat is good enough for them, the food's there, yeah. they can sustain two and fledge two. Two things I wanted to mention. Uh, one is when you said specialist aviculturalists raise yeah. them, are they the people that dress up in the crane suits? Yeah. Can yeah. you tell us about the crane suits? So they've got essentially, if you imagine, sort of a, a big grey duvet set <laughs> over the top of you. Um, there's a, a special litter picker that's painted like a crane head. 
Yeah. Um, so it's got all the, the black and the white stripes and, and the bits of red on it. Um, and they are there literally to try and break up the outline of looking like humans so they don't associate humans with food. Mm. So they're wandering around, literally litter picking food out of a bowl to the crane. And if you watch these adults out here, it's the exact same thing that they're doing with their chicks. They're going around, they're taking you know, snails and seeds and other insects off the vegetation and handing them to the chicks yeah. until they get big enough to So we just had to themselves. replicate that. Yeah. Otherwise you've got a load of tame, one meter tall birds yeah, yeah. running around chasing people with really looking sharp for food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looking for food. Yeah. Basically feathered javelins yeah. walking around <laughs> looking for food. And the other thing is, so they were extinct for 400 years. Was that a habitat thing? Was it a hunting thing? It was a big combination. Some you know, things that a lot of our species are facing now. So yeah. a lot of habitat loss, the wetlands were drained to try and make them you know, easier to farm and yeah. people places to live. But yeah, hunting as well. They've got a really big bustle. They're like a giant feather duster with legs. So yeah. they've got a lot of feathers on them. They can be used for a lot of different things, decorative or ornamental and, and um, others. So yeah, they were hunted as well. They're quite a big birds, so there's probably mm. quite a lot of meat on them. I remember seeing one of those um, lists from a medieval banquet, you know, where they've got all the species that um, were killed for, you know, some aristocrat or something. Henry VIII ate a grouse inside a Yeah, well this was just, in a, this yeah. was just like a f medieval feast that went on for like two days or something like that. And they'd got like 400 swans, a hundred and, and it was like 113 cranes or something like that, that had all been, you know, hunted for this big banquet. So, yeah, uh, you've got to hope there's a lot of people coming to that one. Yeah. <laughs> you can have a lot of leftovers and a lot of kind of you know crane curry for a yeah. few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've overshot it on crisps sometimes and felt you know annoyed. Never mind 113 cranes. What are you doing with all this crane? I know. Um, you mentioned they were released and came back here. Yeah, so there's, there's one theory they think because they were raised here in sort of open, uh, yeah. open aviaries that they kind of navigate by the stars. So they worked okay. out this, this kind of star constellations above us and then came back. But, uh, you know, a good proportion were released in Somerset and stayed down there. So we've got 13 back on site at the moment. Yeah. So we've got six pairs and a spare. Yeah. Um, so this, this pair out here, they've been together for about four or five years now. Yeah. Do they, do they stay together? Well, I always remember when I started here, so I've just been here for about six years now, um, and one of the things I remember seeing on Twitter from, I think it was a Visit Norway website, um, was the sort of top 10 crane facts. Um, and I always think that when anything starts with top 10 something facts, there's always at least three wrong ones. But they've got some really good wildlife up there, um, yeah. and they've got, you know, thousands of cranes, yeah. um, and it was the usual, you know, they're a meter tall, they've got this wingspan, they're this heavy, live this long, yeah. and one of them was pair for life. And whether our birds are just a bit unique, but they've all got colour rings, so we could identify them and follow their progress after release. That's how you know their names, that's yeah. how you know who's who, yeah. And we know, looking at the colour rings, that it's like an episode of Coronation Street <laughs> out there. It's completely chop and change, like most years. So Oki and Sherbert, Oki used to be part of a trio, which was Cotton, Oki and Evie, which was- Three of them, part of a trio? Male and two females. How modern, wow. And uh, they used to set up out here, both females would build a nest, but they kind of nick each other's sticks. So they never really got anywhere. Right. <laughs> Sherbert got to the age where she was ready to breathe. So she kind of came in, kicked out the other two females, Whoa. paired with Oki, and they've bred successfully every year since. So that's, that's a pair so that really works. Sherbert is woman enough to yeah. count for two, <laughs> yeah. for two cranes. She's good. Um, so one of those two have then gone off to another pair, which is uh, Evie. So she's now paired with Monty. 
Right. But Monty himself, even in the sort of six years I've been here, uh, his previous partner was Sedge. Hang on, I need a pen and paper. Yeah, like. <laughs> I've, tri I've tried putting this on a whiteboard to work out the kind of what's going on, and it's a bit chop and change. Um, but yeah, Evie's now with Monty. Monty's previous partner is Sedge, who's currently our spare bird. So that's the 13th. Uh, spare bird. Yeah, yeah. so she, she's unpaired. You just she's use just, her for parts. Yeah, she's hang, <laughs> hanging around on her own. the other cranes <laughs> misses a bit, you just go to Monty, swap the foot, and like back out you go. Uh, but yeah, no, um, so Monty was with Sedge. Before that, he was with a bird called Chip. Um, before that, he was with Sedge the first time. Oh, Before so he's that, back. he was with Chris. So he's had five partners, I think, in the last six years. But he went back and did the whole X thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Texted so. her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Miss you. <laughs> Found a stick. <laughs> Thought of you. Um, but some of them much better. We've got a couple of pairs up the north of the reserve. They've been established for the whole time. So that's uh, Wendy and Albert and Phelps and Elizabeth Royal. And they've both got a chick at the moment as well. Oh, so uh, Elizabeth Royal. Elizabeth Royal. So I believe all the cranes were named by school kids. So we did have birds that were, I think it was Christmas shoes and Easter beans. That, yes. So um, yes. I don't think the kind of Craney McCrane face has quite got to people's kind of psyche yet. So we avoided that one. Yeah, narrowly. How long can they live for? Because you're talking about birds that were hatched between, you say, 2011 and 2014? But also having a lot of, you know, oh, romantic yeah. partners, life, you know, yeah, how quick yeah. are these relationships? Are they? So 20, 2010 to 2014, oh. birds were released each year. Yeah. Um, and the colourings on there denote which release it was which year. Mm -hmm. um, so they start pairing up sort of three to five, probably lived sort of 15 to 20. Yeah. I think it's kind of one of those unknown questions that we don't really know a lot about them or we thought we did but yeah. we're kind of learning a lot of new stuff so um, it's going to be interesting to see and hopefully these guys will fledge their chicks yeah. it's quite a precarious sort of 70 days that they're uh, they can't fly until they fledge yeah so uh, anything you know on the ground foxes badgers or even just the weather days like this really uh, not good for them because they because they've not got really waterproof feathers have they they're like coming in a downy yeah when they come out the egg for the first few weeks until they start growing those those first juvenile feathers they're what we call ginger ninjas they're what? actually just like I, ginger pom-poms running around yeah. <laughs> One thing I'm going to confess to everyone in the room is when I was packing very quickly, like going to an observatory, let me get all my nature stuff, I thought I grabbed my binoculars. What I actually grabbed was a bat detector. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I'm at. <laughs> and I don't know how good that is for picking up a crane. <laughs> Probably not the cranes. Yeah. They've got bats in the hides. They, yeah. use, they use the hides as roost. So yes, um, yeah, I'm going to have a peek through your telescope. Yeah, yeah, it should be set up on the, uh, on the birds. There? Have you seen a crane before in the wild? Not in the wild. So who, who am I looking at? So this is pair Oki and Sherbet. So the bird that stood up at the minute is Sherbet. That's the female. Sherbet, dead straight. Yep. She's just put her head up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah keeping on alert. So Oki's like just off to her left, kind of hidden in the grass, so he's got the chicks under his wings, keeping them dry. Will they both incubate? Yeah, no, they swap over. So they bred just on the island on the left over there. They hatched around about a week ago. Um, so they take a little bit of time to dry off coming out the egg, and then after a day or two, they cross over the water. Um, and then, yeah, it's uh, yeah, 70 to 75 days until they fledge, so uh, they'll be out here for the next couple of months for people to come and, and see. And that's when you say fledge for a bird that leaves the nest pretty much instantly, that means to fly, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's when they, they're able to get off the ground. Um, 
so some birds are, are quite quick so you know blue tits in the nest box in the garden yeah it's only just a couple of weeks and they're out the hole and off they go looking after themselves more or less um, these guys much bigger birds can take much much longer for them they're so cool they're very striking their head patterns on them aren't they yeah and that red patch on the back is actually bare skin it's not feathers really yeah. wow they're cool and for 400 years no one's been able to see this Let's see if you see the um, the rings on them. So on the left oh, I can leg. I see the baby. Oh, you got it? Yeah, yeah, he's just stuck his head up. A little ginger ninja. Yeah. Did you see him, Jack? No. Do you want to see the ginger ninja quickly? Uh, of course I do. Oh, the mum's just come over. You're going to see her feed him. Oh, I can, oh yeah. <laughs> Using her litter pick a beak. Yeah. <laughs> They're very fluffy. Yeah, I see why they need to be kept warm on a day like today. Yeah, I need a picture of this and these cranes yeah. and then a picture of my balcony view in London and those cranes. <laughs> <laughs> How many reserves in the UK have cranes? How many places can I go to to see them? So the main populations East Anglia, so sort of Norfolk, okay. venturing into Suffolk and into parts of Cambridgeshire. Um, so places like Hickling Broad over in Norfolk, really okay. good. Lots of people go there to see the cranes. Um, but they're usually quite distant, so a bit further off. So we're quite fortunate here that the birds are relatively used to kind of the comings and goings of the vehicle. So yeah. during the summer, we do what we call a wild safari, which is we've got a Land Rover and a specially adapted trailer. We take people out up to the north of the reserve and show them the birds relatively close. And these birds are nesting sort of a few meters away from hides and stuff. So you can oh, get a really right. intimate view of what, what they're up to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Hickling Broad, there's a few and they're starting to colonize other parts. Um, so into South Wales, uh, into Oxfordshire, um, there's birds that have been recorded up in Scotland and Ireland for the first time. Because so. one thing I've noticed is at the back of this field there seems to be a farmer with a crane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so talking about them coming back here, you know, is that, are they, they're idle? So I actually looked into, because I, I thought this is going to be a great idea, I thought we could play a game of crane or crane. <laughs> and I looked in to whether there were bird cranes because we get, you know, the mechanical crane is named after the bird crane because yep. it resembles it. Yep. So I thought, well, maybe there's some cranes, man-made mechanical cranes that have names. Maybe it's like ring crane or something like that. And right. I found there was one called ring crane. I thought, well, that could sound like a bird. And all the rest were like top loader crane, <laughs> flat deck crane. I was like, I think maybe crane or crane isn't going to work. Yeah. As well as this pair out here, um, we've got a pair on the South Lake, so that's uh, Ruby, an unringed bird, uh, so he's oh. not from the project. Um, so no idea where he's from? Probably East Anglia, potentially okay. the continent, maybe even Scandinavia. They do kind of, you know, venture out and explore new territories. Um, but yeah, he's a, a completely sort of wild bird that's come in, not linked to the project anyway. It's not a second generation bird that's got old enough. Yeah. Um, but then just around the corner on the Rushy, which is kind of the heart of Slimbridge in the winter, um, we've got a pair called Kia and Chocolo. Yeah. So uh, Kia was a bird, she used to come here with another female called Rosa and they kind of have sort of seasonal day trips, come mm -hmm. up from Somerset, come and see what's going on, yeah, go yeah. back to Somerset. And then the one year she just stayed. Um, when the unringed bird that Ruby's with turned up, there was a second unringed bird. Rosa left with him, so Kia was kind of left on her own. Oh. So she took a shine um, to the site, stayed, and then a few years ago, a male called Chocolo turned up mm -hmm. and we know Chocolo was a breeding bird from South Wales paired with a bird called Tamsin. Oh. So it's like, oh, hang on, there's something happened to Tamsin. Yeah. Have they either broken up or is she dead or whatever? Um, and Kier and Chocolo set up here. They, they had chicks um, previous year and they're currently nesting on the Rushy. But when we got in touch with our, our colleagues at the RSPB, they sent some volunteers down and they found that Tamsin was still down there in South Wales, yeah. but she'd lost a foot. 
So well, you've got a spare crane, haven't you? Yeah. Well, yeah. Just go to the spare crane and swap <laughs> it out. Uh, take it off Sedge. Um, so yeah, whether she's, I don't know, got caught in a snare or something like that. Um, but he's basically assessed her and gone, yeah, you're not fit to that breed, I'm off. It's brutal. That one who assessed her said that was one that came in out of nowhere. Yeah, it's Chocolo. So he's Unlike been occasionally... a Harley in a leather jacket, <laughs> just came storming in, Rocky all these paired up chromes. Yeah, like um, Rocky in Chicken Run. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's set up, knows what they're doing, then suddenly... Just it's, the exactly. <laughs> Showbiz crane just comes in, slows so the whole of the dynamic. Does Tamsin ever find another, or was she... So left? there was a, a second-generation bird um, that went to South Wales that then ended up kind of hanging around with her, but it was another female. Um, so I don't know what she's currently up to, whether she's still down there, but she was coping at the time. So, uh, but yeah, not an ideal scenario to kind of lose a foot and then be abandoned by a partner. You know, that's rough. Have you seen this whole question that just around it on the internet that is, would you still love me if I was a worm? Yeah. <laughs> like, in the crane world, <laughs> would you still love me if I was a foot? <laughs> the, the bar is low, like yeah. you lose a foot and you're gone. <laughs> I interviewed my um, taxi driver, mm. uh, testing the equipment in the taxi from Gloucester to here. And he's like, where are you going? I said, Slimbridge. He went, Slimbridge? And then paused for a minute. He went, that's birds, innit? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah. Then I thought, oh, while I'm testing this mic, let me just make sure. So, you know, um, you ever been? Nah. Take a lot of people in the summer, though. They go to see the wildlife. I'm like, oh, do you not want to see the wildlife? Nah. <laughs> this is a hard interview. <laughs> this is a real uphill battle. Maybe if I'd pitched him the Coronation Street cranes, yeah. it would have uh, been more interested. It got the buy-in. Yeah. So yeah, I'm definitely a believer of. Uh, some people don't like kind of anthropomorphizing birds and wildlife generally, but mm. you know, if you could put a name to that crane and give it a life story, yeah. the people who aren't really hardcore birders, they're going to connect with it and go, oh yeah, no, I remember that crane. Yeah. It, you know, abandoned its partner because it lost a foot, or yeah, that one's had five partners in the last six years. Yeah. And yeah. it's the same with one of our other really iconic species, Buick swans. Okay. So they've all got names. They've been coming here. Um, one of my favourites that used to come was a bit called Croupier. He was 27 years old. Croupier. Yeah. So they were part of what we call the gambling dynasty. So they all have gambling related names. What? Um, but we can trace their lineage right the way back to the 1960s. Uh, when wow. Peter Scott was looking at those birds, so we can follow so that family tree. These are swans that come for the winter, don't they? They spend yeah. the winter in the UK. And they're incredibly litigious. <laughs> <laughs> they keep track of their own records. They arrive with paperwork. They're not like that crane <laughs> which came in out of nowhere, you know, in a leather jacket. Hello, this is me. This is my father, my father's father, yeah. all the way back. Yeah, no, they're brilliant birds. Um, so yeah, you know, Croupier used to come here. He'd come here for, I think, 28 winters. He first came as a signet with his parents. Yeah. Um, he was paired to a bird called Dealer. Um, they've got some like, <laughs> yeah. owned a chain of casinos. <laughs> 20, uh, 29 signets in their lifetime. But if you tell people that, there's there's some kind of connection to it. Oh, 100%. Um, rather than just saying, oh yeah, that white bird out over there is a Buick Swan, it's come all the way from Russia, and yeah. you know, it's you know, really, really rare. Yeah. It just, I don't know, for me, it yeah. connects people a lot more. Mm. So I'm always up for kind of, yeah, naming stuff and getting as many people yeah. kind of involved with what's going on. So every time a new swan turns up, you kind of suggest a name to our swan officer. It's like, oh, that's been used. <laughs> right. Okay. okay yeah. <laughs> so the names have to be run by the swan officer. Yes, yeah, so he decides. <laughs> Is it like a kind of uh, gladiator, like thumbs up, thumbs down? Does he sit on like a big throne made of swan? swan. <laughs> Just. Is he a giant swan? Yeah. 
Uh, he, he sometimes goes to three uh, themes. So at one point, he'd just done a trip uh, to North America. So he was doing sort of little towns and rivers in North America. The gambling dynasty. Um, we did try and get him on Game of Thrones at one point, oh, but I think he saw through that. So uh, we did have a Baratheon at one point. Oh, nice. so. Baratheon Swan. Yeah, that's it. I like that. The Swan Officer's cool. The Butte Swans are great. Do you have any iconic geese? So yeah, we get white fronted geese in the winter. Uh, yep. So they're another one that's coming over, same as the Buicks. Mm -hmm. um, and they're one of the kind of iconic species that Peter Scott came to see, along with another species called lesser white fronted goose. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, the goose with the golden eye. Very kind of small, Ooh. cute bird. It's got a gold ring around its eye. That's um, a better name than the lesser white-fronted goose. Yeah. That's a better name for most things. <laughs> it's one of those descriptive birds, again, it's, it's smaller, so it's lesser. Yeah. White-fronted, because it's got a white front on its head. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but goose with a golden eye is kind of I like that. The, the nice name for it. It's like some Chronicles of Narnia style. No, it's the villain in the James Swan <laughs> series. <laughs> goose with the golden eye. That's cool. But yeah, no, he came 1945, um, came over, saw all the geese that were here, and it was tens of thousands back then, yeah. um, including the lesser white fronts, and he knew how rare they were. So he then approached the Barclay estate who owned the land, set up Seven Wildfire Trust, eventually became WWT. Uh, we still get white fronted geese here, uh, mm. much smaller numbers because of climate change, they're what we call short stopping. So they don't have to come to the UK anymore. They can survive the winter over in the Netherlands or over in Germany. Um, it's the same with the Buicks as well. We're seeing their numbers drop year on year. But white fronted geese numbers across the world are stable. Buick swans, their numbers are in free fall. They're really, really struggling. So it's not it's not just the fact that it's getting warm and they don't need to come all the way here, their population is also going down too. Yeah, Buick swans, it's a double-edged sword. So um, last year we had a really good breeding season. So we're hoping lots of cygnets are gonna go back. A couple of years time, they'll pair up and breed and we'll start to see a return. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Buick swans, numbers are going down and they don't have to come here anymore because they don't need to come this far. Right. But they're very habitual. They go back to the same wintering sites. So hence yeah. we can track those family trees you know, back to the 60s when yeah. it all started and they come back when they when they come back from migrating in uh, so that when they've come back from breeding in Russia they come back with their offspring don't they yeah because yeah. they're not like I don't know if it's the same with the cranes as well but the the bigger birds don't instinctively know where to migrate to do they they have to follow their parents who bring them here yeah no mum and dad are, are bringing them down so last year we'll say we had some good sized families as well sort of you know broods of five broods of four broods of three um, the last 10 years we've struggled to get into double figures of cygnets and, really? and last year I think we had over 30 cygnets okay, um, so great. much better breeding season something went right for them up on the tundra yeah um, but yeah mum and dad showing them the route they're then showing them the route back um, and that in itself is fraught with dangers you know there's everything from you know fewer and fewer wetland places for yeah. them to roost and to feed um, they've got things in the way wind turbines power lines um, they're still being shot at illegally yeah. um, so it's a, a you know a big journey for them to undertake just for the distance adding all the extras is is what's making them kind of decline mm. um, but yeah they bring them down show them the route and then hopefully the year after they sometimes will kind of follow mum and dad again with their next family they'll kind of cling on to them uh, and sometimes they'll on the, as a yearling so a one-year-old they'll come on their own and they find their own way set up their own kind of dynasty then of yeah. uh, pairing up and bringing their own signals back in the future get a new load of names yeah <laughs> what's that uh, has the swan officer decided what the naming convention is going to be for this coming winter yet or is that I mean, how much planning does the swan officer need it usually goes on character so they have got a character you see some birds are quite kind of they definitely come in and they're, they're either quite dominant or they you know they're just a bit bullshit or they're really kind of shy and and um kind of keep themselves themselves out of the way um so dealer who i mentioned yeah um so she he used to call the duchess 
because she would swim around the pond and she would be very straight necked and she'd yeah. have her head ever so slightly tipped up like she's got a nose up against everybody else <laughs> and you could just tell she thought she was royalty yeah. <laughs> the duchess do you have to work your way up through being dock officer to get to swan officer or do you come in at swan officer coot so, officer first. yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> an intern as Morhen Morhen assistant <laughs> Um, one of the other things that we do here is try and do a bit of a, a catch in the winter as part of our monitoring program. Okay. Um, so they, the birds then get colouring, so if other people see them in Europe, we don't need a team of Steves across yeah. Europe to recognise the bill patterns. <laughs> yeah. People can uh, report those leg rings to us. Um, but we also x-ray the birds, um, and if we're catching the birds multiple times, we can see if they're being shot at because they have lead no shot embedded way. in their body. Oh. And so we got uh, around about 130 swans last year, I think it was. Um, but our rolling average of doing these x-rays is around about a third of the birds that we get here every winter has got shot in them where they've been targeted at illegally on migration. Wow. Two questions. How do you catch them? <laughs> and my second one is, do you have an x-ray on site or do you just go to the nearest A&E with 130 <laughs> swans <laughs> in uh, the back of a van? And you're like, come on, come through. Yeah, they all, they all take a ticket and wait their turn. Yeah. Because, so. uh, you know, the NHS is struggling. So yeah. if you're, this is why, sticking 130 swans through the system. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the uh, so first one, we use what we call a swan pipe. Um, yep. So it's. Uh, <laughs> I love this already. If you kind of imagine the polytunnel, um, yeah. but instead of having like plastic sheeting over it, it's got netting over it. Yep. And as you get further and further down, it gets narrower oh. and a bit shorter. Oh. So it acts like a funnel, and we feed up it twice a day every day. The birds get used to coming in and out. And then once or twice a year, if they're going into the pipe regularly, we can shut the door behind them, drive oh. them to the end, keep them all nice and safe. Um, and then yeah go through all the work that we do and yeah we've got an x-ray machine on site and we've also got a mobile x-ray machine that we've taken out across the world as well to look at other problems that other birds are facing wow. so Scott we like to have we like to answer questions from our listeners and we have a question here from ecologist Brad which we need your expert opinion on because it is which animal in the animal kingdom would be the best at your job? Hmm, that's probably an easy one you think actually. Um, well, what do you need? What do you need for your job? So for my job, this sounds um, like a job interview now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what can people, you bring to the team? What did I say six years ago that got me the job? Yeah, uh, exactly. So yeah, the, the the practical skills. So the ability to go out, manage and shape and create wetlands, which oh, are then going to be really, yeah, really good yeah, for stuff. Yeah. So you know where we're going? Oh, we know. Yeah. Where we're going. <laughs> we know where we're going. So yeah, probably a beaver. Probably a beaver. But you, do you also manage a team of volunteers? Yeah, so I'm not sure the beaver will be able to do that very well. Do you think the beaver's going to be well. good at managing a team of volunteers? I don't, I don't know how know. well they are in computers. Yeah, mm, that's true. Would the volunteers also be beavers? They'd, no, they'd be volunteers and they'd be water Nice. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Any beavers here? Not yet. Any beavers likely to be here? Never say never, if the habitat was right for them. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, lots of projects going on. Um, so a lot of the wildlife trusts are, are getting involved and, and other private landowners want them on their land to create these habitats and so really showing the impact they're having because um, they're creating their dams, they're not going about it for a kind of, you know, a greater good, yeah. they're doing it for themselves, yeah. but it's that knock-on effect. Um, similar to sort of the cranes, you know, we're going out, we're managing the land, creating good habitat for cranes, but it's a knock-on effect for loads and loads of other species. Mm. So, um, yeah. Another question, this is from James Stevens, who wants to know, what bird call would you replace with the loudness of a bittern's boom? 
So bittens have a very loud booming call that carries for, I think you can hear it, miles. Are you going to do it for us? Mm. <laughs> there you go, that's my deep bit and boom. That's pretty good, that was pretty good actually. Thank you very much. But is there any bird that we'd, we'd say, they're nice but they could be a bit louder? Mm. You said it can be heard up to miles? Bittens, yeah, but they're quite deep. But I'm very, crazy. I'm very glad that it's not pigeons mm. in the city because there's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> like if every time a pigeon landed on my balcony, well, the windows started shaking. James, <laughs> <You know? laughs> I really don't need this. James says which bird? So maybe it's a single pigeon. Once amongst, amongst the London, amongst this London cityscape. Let's go through one of these questions. You could definitely do a lot of definitely not that one. Yeah, well, that's what, often how we start. Is it? So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's often a good way to start is think about what it definitely isn't. Definitely not a great tip. Definitely not a great teacher, tip. Teacher, 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 yeah. teacher. Really loud, single note, get some variation. Ren, I think, is loud enough already. Yep. It's very loud, very shrill. What about an owl? Could owls be a bit louder? Some of them could. Things like Scops owls, they're quite quiet. We could find them then easier if they're a bit yeah. louder. That's a bit whispery. What about animals in general? Are there any animals we could have a bit louder? See, Idas, they're always a real favourite with visitors. Idas. What if they were as loud as a bitten? So, James Stevens actually suggests I'd go with Ida. Because, I, do you know the sound an Ida makes? No, well, even if I did, you're doing it. So, so <laughs> Ida, this is not going to be as good as my bit. But I just go, ooh, like that. Oh, yeah. So, well, you've got Ida's here, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll walk past them later. That'd be even better, because if you've got Coronation Street crane drama <laughs> happening over there, and every now and then you just heard, ooh, <laughs> booming across the hedges. The windows of the Zeiss are rattling. <laughs> Suddenly becomes very carry-on, you know, some kind of Kenneth Williams Ida um, in the next pond. Yeah. Um, animals in general, like, Earthworms. <laughs> Do they make a noise? I don't even know. <laughs> It'd be like, uh, isn't there a film about giant worms? Tremors? Yeah. Or something, I think. Yeah. Like that. It's like, yeah. If every every now and then it just started yeah. <laughs> shaking. Like, I want to know what sound. So recently I learned that, that as well as learning bird calls, you can learn the calls of rodents. Hmm. And there are people out there putting audio uh, recording equipment into natural places, places like this, and recording all the sounds of rodents and small mammals that they hear. A vole at like 200 decibels. <laughs> I wonder what that's like. A really loud shrew. Yeah. yeah. You can hear shrews. You ever heard shrews? You ever heard shrews? Yeah, yeah. You wander around, you get a bit of you know, thick vegetation somewhere, you'll yeah. hear them squeaking away. Because they're constantly active, they've got to feed all the time, they can't yeah. just stop them. They'd appreciate the loud worms then. They'd appreciate that. Really easy to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the owls would appreciate the loud shrews. Mm. This really destabilizes a lot of... <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <an entire ecosystem. laughs> yeah. So maybe we just stick with eiders. Yeah. <laughs> now, Slimbridge has two strings to its bow as well as the fantastic nature reserve side of things, it also has one of the biggest collections of exotic waterfowl anywhere in the world. So, after our time in the hide watching the cranes, and when the rain had mostly stopped, we set out to see how the work of the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust was saving species on a global scale, starting with some pretty rare geese. Okay, right. So we've now walked into what I can only describe as potentially the most bizarre enclosure <laughs> I've ever seen. 
anywhere, but it's incredible because we've walked into, Scott, what have we walked into? Uh, yeah, essentially a replication of what some of the birds we work on or have worked on in the past uh, live in Hawaii. So we've got a bit of a golf course, we've got a little bit of a lake, we've got kind of some volcanic landscape as well. Yeah. Um, and it's all to tell the story of the Nene, so the Hawaiian goose. That was one of the first captive breeding projects Peter Scott worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, so back when they were incredibly rare, there's just a handful left in the world, he got two sent over here to start breeding them. Eventually realised it were two females, so that was never going to work. <laughs> so they sent Swing over a, a third one. <laughs> Um, but that eventually kick-started um, a captive breeding program. Birds were then sent back to Hawaii, um, but because their numbers had got so low and the habitat had changed so much, they actually took to living on golf courses, which is just really good grazing for them. I was it's really grassland. The grass, yeah. So um, yeah, they're definitely one of the conservation success stories and things that were learnt during that captive breeding program we've then used on things like the cranes and black-tailed godwits in Norfolk and yeah. Madagascar potchards and spoonbill sandpipers over in Siberia. So um, yeah, that was kind of the, the catalyst back in the the 60s for kicking all this off amazing and it is very because we say enclosure there's no like roof on it this is just you turn around and look outwards and you're looking at british landscape and then you turn around and there's palm trees <laughs> sand a, banks a golf hut <laughs> you know it's, bamboo it's quite immersive yeah it's amazing yeah it's all right let's yeah let's go find a nene <clears throat> oh cool so, yeah quite an ornamental goose they're very nice they're quite small for a yep. goose. I like this walk with their head down. Yeah, what's what's all this about? Then? That's a threat display. Ah, so the other okay. pairs that are in here, this is you know this is our family. We're dominant. We're coming through. Right. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven adults in front of us here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sort of milling around on the golf course. <laughs> and four. <laughs> and four very downy goslings. Yeah. How many geese are in here? So I think it's uh, tw- up to twelve now with the uh, the babies okay so, first time uh, the question has ever been asked <laughs> so what's their status now in the wild a hell of a lot better than they were yeah. um, i think we're up to kind of a few thousand now in the world great um so you know, we had uh, a, a population here uh, that say was sent back over and they were reintroduced essentially into some of the new parts so yeah they're still endangered yeah. but they're not kind of critical they're, they're definitely been one of the, the positives that we've uh, managed to achieve over the last few years and do you know what numbers they got down to in the wild uh, it was down to sort of just a handful so wow yeah, it was down to sort of just about double figures so incredible so they really have been brought back from the brink yeah absolutely and did you is slimbridge the leading um Basically, when things get really small, or what I'm thinking of is in conservation, there's the stud book. Yeah. Does Slimbridge have the stud book for them? So for our, our living collection, so that the captive birds in, in the uh, living collection, they're on the stud book. Um, so you know the birds will be moved around between our WWT centres. Yeah. So we've got collections at other sites, but also other private uh, sites just to keep that diversity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for these guys, it was kind of a hope for the best but this was back in the 60s so yeah. you know three birds were sent over they managed to breed and, and thankfully through having the stud book you can see they've all got the the leg rings on so we know yep. who's breeding with who yeah yeah so and you can keep that genetic diversity as yeah, yeah yeah that's definitely key when the populations get so small because yeah. the stud book just to be clear is so you can track who's mated with who so whose kid is what so that you don't get too much inbreeding yeah yeah and i guess with these guys with the madagascar potchards there's the WWT is sort of right at the front of, I guess, crisis conservation. Yeah, where, it's... and the spoonbill sandpipers and t- taking things 
from the wild that are at critical levels when we need to create an arc population. Yeah, it's kind of it's going to be the last resort because yeah. you know what we call head starting, so taking those eggs from the wild, hatching them, raising them, releasing them, is very labour intensive. Yeah. But unfortunately, some of our species have got to such an extent that's the only way of keeping them going. Yeah. Because we can't wait. 10 15 years to fix the habitat no. or sort out creating new wetland areas or you know reduce shooting or bycatch or anything like that for things like the spoonbill sandpipers we've got to start kind of you know almost like artificial life support we've got to keep the population yes. going so we've got time to fix the rest and of we're it. looking at the evidence over here like without without these without some of these animals being taken into captivity the geese and bread we wouldn't be able to stand here and look at them because they no. would have gone extinct but not even look at the ones here still in captivity yeah. there wouldn't be the now thousands yeah. back in hawaii yeah. Great job, team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've now walked from Hawaii and now we're on the Arctic tundra. Yep. So less golf infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. Is my first thought. <laughs> Ramshackle hut. Yeah. yeah, so there's a hut in the middle. It's a big open sort of flat grassy vibe. And we've got some water with some Buick swans. Yeah. And then in the middle there, we've got some of our white fringed geese as well. Ah. So these are the Buick swans that all have the recognizable, the same species that all have the recognizable patterns on their bill, aren't they? Yes, yeah, so if you, you know, if they come close enough, you have a look, um, you see the, the one on the left there has got a lot of black on the bill. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the one over towards the back of the pond is much more yellow. But that pattern, the way the black interacts with the yellow, it is unique. So it's like a, a fingerprint or if you're a swan officer, well, yeah, <laughs> they've got their name written across their forehead in a yeah, marker I'm pen. looking at them. I think that swan officer is <laughs> like... <laughs> bullshit on swan yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see you say that to his face. <laughs> to his bill. <laughs> yeah, you can oh, see... Oh, no, that one does have yellow, so it yeah. is back to me, sorry. The one on the left is All right, a lot swan officer. Black. You win this round. You play your game. <laughs> so yeah, this is hopefully taking visitors kind of up to the tundra where some of our winter birds are spending their time during the breeding season. So our Buicks that we're famous for, the white-fronted geese, and showing the research work that we do out there as well. Because we do get, in the UK, we get huge amounts of waterfowl come for the winter, don't we? Yeah, tens, well, millions. Yeah. Um, if you combine ducks, geese, swans with the waders and all the other birds, you know, little pasteurised things you get in your garden like you know the robins are coming over yeah. from Europe for the winter just get um, cold in Scandinavia yeah. and places like that no the UK is internationally important and I don't think we really kind of well perhaps take for granted just how many birds we get on places like our estuaries yeah. how important we are in Europe for all these species that are coming in because we've got so much coastline I guess just, yeah, yeah yeah we're now looking out at an area I'm going to be honest with you with cardboard cutouts of geese yeah <laughs> So, um, as well as having the actual real birds out on the pond, as you can see, they're on the pond at the moment. Yep. So, part of the research that we do is when we catch the birds, we tag them with these uh, leg rings. Yep. So, this is kind of a, a fail-safe for when we've got school groups come in and families, they can have a go at spotting and reading the rings like a researcher would up in the Arctic. Right. Yes. So, so, if the birds are on the water, it's a little bit difficult for them to do. Yes, so they do have little little colourings on their, on their cardboardy legs. Yeah. I'm sure they're made out of sterner stuff than cardboard. <laughs> they wouldn't still be standing in yeah. this weather. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So we now walked into a, 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 a wooden hut. But an opposite of a Hawaiian golf club. Yeah. Oh. Immersive. And the sounds of the tundra. 
And I'm guessing up there in the tundra, it's just like miles and miles of <laughs> of swan. Of just, <laughs> of just like flat open on a scale of habitat that we're just not used to in the UK. No, definitely not. It's one of those kind of endless landscapes that just disappears into the horizon. <clears throat> Do you know exactly where the Buick swans that that come to Slimbridge? exactly where they're breeding some of them so, so nests yeah so um, when our researchers go up they go up when the birds are molting so they can't fly they're catching the adults and the juveniles um, so they're tagging them on their breeding lakes um, occasionally on molting sites but then we've also had satellite tag birds so we can follow them back on a migration uh, um, so we know they're going you know across over the netherlands through germany so sometimes southern scandinavia um, and then up through the baltic states there's a, a big area um, in estonia where they kind of hang out ready to cross into Russia because um, going through Russia they've got a massive area of forest to fly over mm. which okay it's natural habitat it should be fine but for them there's nowhere to land there's nowhere to feed they've got to go for it and it's a massive flight so when those youngsters are coming back the other way they're only a few weeks old and they've got to do what two and a half thousand That's uh, really kilometers. I've never thought about that because we talk about when you think about bird migration we often think about the birds that go to Africa and you think about the big barrier that a lot of birds have to cross is the Sahara. Yep. And you think of it as this, you know, impenetrable, desolate wasteland. But something like a swan, a forest is just as harsh and inhospitable yep. as the Sahara no. desert is to a swallow. Nowhere to land, nowhere I to eat. I never thought about that. That's really cool. I like that. But yeah, we, we always think migration is that north-south. But for the UK, it's mainly east-west. A lot of our wintering birds are coming that way. The breeding birds might be coming from the south, sort of, you know, southern Europe and Africa. Um, but then even some of the winter birds, they're coming down from Iceland, you know, they've got across the Atlantic, that's a big hurdle for them as well. Yeah. There's a, as you go into the next bit, there's a sort of interactive exhibit where you can try on the expedition gear, and next to it is a sign, I'm guessing at about four-year-old height, looking at where it's placed on the wall, and it says, um, you know, join me for a field trip, P.S. Don't forget your binoculars. Friendly reminder <laughs> that I brought a bat detector. <laughs> <laughs> As a grown man. <laughs> We've now approached the flamingos. <laughs> oh, these are fancy flamingos. Right. So, so to, for people listening, if you don't know what a flamingo looks like, turn us off now because... <laughs> yeah, we don't need to do any description. Yeah. Although there are, how many species of flamingo are in here? So there should be four species in here. Um, so the nearest ones to us, these are lesser flamingos. Okay. And then out on the island, the kind of baby pink necks and yeah. yellow legs, those are Andeans, so they're South yeah. American. Um, the one stood in the middle, looks similar, but he's got orange legs. Yep. And that's James's flamingo. Um, he is the only James's flamingo in captivity in the world. And he's possibly about 70 years old. What? Um, wow. Where's James? <laughs> And then the uh, single big one, well, I've got a couple of big ones actually down on the left there, much paler birds, um, those are the Caribbeans. Wow, okay. Okay. So, I so feel like there's quite a bit to unpack here. Far more to unpack than I initially <laughs> jumped in at. Right. My, well, my initial thought was, there are some fancy flamingos in here, because normally, I don't know which species you normally see in captivity, but it's not the ones with the yellow legs. The baby pink neck is very... And they're the Andean flamingos? They're Andean, yes. so they're, so they're the ones... high up in the Andes. Yeah breeding on the top on the really caustic lakes um, uh, so they're the ones that if you watched was it seven worlds one planet and they, they did south america and they're dancing around yeah so they will dance here they go out on the grass at the back there and they stand up and they parade backwards and forwards when it's nice and sunny i've seen that they're very i don't yeah i've never seen those before they're very nice they're gorgeous yeah and then 
you hit us with the James's flamingo, which is the only one of its species in captivity in the world. Yeah. And it's potentially seven year, uh, 70 years old? Yeah. So where are they from in the world? So different species across the world. So the lesser flamingos Sorry. are African, James's and Andean's are South American. Okay. And then yeah, Caribbean's over in North America. And then we get graters sort of across Europe. And... But with the James's flamingo, why is he, are they critically, why is he the only one? So he, What's his story? He was one that was <laughs> uh, probably originally collected from the wild when collection started yeah. decades and decades and decades ago. Um, and there's never been an opportunity or a need to kind of add to the population and, yeah. and bring them back there. You know, they're doing okay enough in the natural habitat. Right. So these are kind of, you know, because they are such long-lived birds, it's not a case of going and grabbing one, breeding it, and then yeah. it in a few years when the population's are not too bad. You've got a, a long-term bird to look after. So it's almost the opposite of We've seen a lot of Splinbridge and how it's critically endangered in the wild and it's brought in here to be rehabilitated and the population grown and put back. But James's flamingo, we're almost saying, is the opposite. They're doing all right, so there's no need. So this is the pigeon of flamingos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not quite that common. But yeah, it's definitely the way conservation has shifted. It's, it's gone from having these kind of arc populations yeah. and captive breeding and, and keeping birds in captivity just in case to actually, right, let's you know go out, keep the population going, yeah, fix those yeah. habitat problems so the birds can sort themselves out because they're the best ones to do what they need to do. And with those wise, if a bit windswept words from Scott, it was time to end our trip to Slimbridge. A big thank you to the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust for inviting us down and to Scott for showing us around. It's a very cool place, doing properly amazing work, so absolutely worth checking out. That's it from us. We hope you enjoyed this special episode and keep listening to the end for a special clip that we had to squeeze in. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future with Season 4, but if you want to help us in the meantime, then please do go check out our Instagram page, write us a review, or we're very grateful for any donations on Buy Me A Coffee. So, until next time, keep on listening, keep on sharing, and keep on goosing. Someone once told me a really cute story about Eilers, and they said, um, so they lived in Shetland or somewhere like that, and they'd got this daughter, and they moved to somewhere in mainland Scotland, and they were in primary school or whatever, and the teachers were doing, maybe it was even younger, and the teachers were like, what noise do, do, do ducks make? And the daughter was like, ooh, like that. And all the other kids <laughs> were like, what? And it's because she'd grown up in Shetland, and the only ducks she'd ever known yeah. were Ida's. So cool. And to her, ah. that's the noise that ducks made. Whereas obviously to everyone else, it's quite quack. Yeah. But they, and they only the females. Is it? Yeah, the males don't go quack quack. What? Do the males not make... They make some noise, but it's the females that are quack quack. How did I get to 29 and not know that? Yeah, that sounds like a real basic bird fact. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Never seen Jack be outbirded. This is... <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen now.